0: Run podcast. I'm Tristan black Welcome to another episode of our series, Top Secret Guest here on Black Cats Run. Our guest today is Paige Kostanecki. Paige is somebody who is equally dynamic in her racing with ButcherBox Cycling as she is in her thinking, reflectiveness, honesty, and perspective. Engaged is one of the best ways to describe Paige. She's somebody who exudes the energy that is that ideal focus of curiosity, motivation, and genuine desire to look for new ideas, to solve problems, to make the world a better place. She's willing to help others because it's the right thing to do, She really practices the kind of altruism that I think we should all aspire to. This episode is part one of my conversation with Paige. There will be a part two, which will come out next week. There was so much to discuss that we're planning to check back in with Paige periodically throughout the upcoming season. You can follow Paige on Instagram at WillBikeForCats. You can follow ButcherBox at ButcherBoxCycling. If you're enjoying the pod, you can follow us on Instagram as well at BlackCatsRun. Send us a message. Let us know what questions you have or what you'd like to hear more of. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's get into today's episode.
1: Of the question, all right. I am wondering if this whole podcast not even just inviting me on, but the whole podcast is, is a way, some sort of trap to, to get me focused and in a place where you can convince me that I should start running and that it will be beneficial to my cycling career and training. Um, for those who are not aware, I only run in emergencies. Um, and I am uninterested in running. Tristan and Jillian, my <laughs> teammate Jillian, they are big proponents of running. I went and I tried to cheer them on at a marathon in Washington D.C. Um, I completely missed them at the finish line, which was tragedy. Really, really sad. But so I'm just wondering, like, like what's what's your motive?
0: Well, it's definitely an elaborate ploy to trick everybody into running. You know, but I've also found, and maybe this is, you know, my cynical side from public education, working in public education, that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. So I used to, I said this on another episode, but when I coached cross country, I used to tell the athletes just for the fun of it to be like, don't, we can't tell anybody what we're doing, right? This is our special secret. You know, training, this is our secret weapon. And the reality is, is I could have published the training schedule and recorded a 45-minute set of directions on every single day, and people still wouldn't have been able to figure out how to do it. It's just more, it's, it's interesting how it's hard, I think, for people to change mindsets about things, you know? And I think we see that a lot, and I think sports as a cultural, and I I think sometimes people act like, well, sport just is in this little box, and that's it. And it's like not acceptable to think big thoughts about it, but it's like, it is our culture, and it just becomes more and more of our culture, and it's like a morality play, you know, it's a space where people go to find fulfillment. It's like a lot of stuff, you know, And, and maybe society has had a little bit of a drag trying to catch back up to that understanding. But I think that's one of those things that you see is, I mean, you see the stuff coming out about people who ride their bikes, very low bone density. Like there's a lot it's of benefits. Good. Yeah. There's a lot of benefits to doing depend you. And and to be fair, I mean, it's not like you only ride for exercise, right? You do other things. You go to the gym, you lift. Right. So I think there's something to be said for having multiple, things in there, but that the running is definitely a challenging barrier for people. Right? And right. how much of that is mental and how much of that is physical and can right. you separate those?
1: Not to make excuses. I really try not to, I have had knee issues in the past, which I feel uh running exacerbates. And so I've just kind of avoided it. I can also just do other things that would keep my uh hips, IT band, knee, that whole chain healthy so that I could run. Um, But, you know, I think <clears throat> to to your point on you know uh thinking outside the the box and doing things beyond just cycling you know it's only just in the past it feels like a year or two maybe two years three years that people have accepted the general cycling world has accepted weightlifting as as something that not only you can do but that you should do and it's for you know what you said this issue of bone density which i am in no way, shape, or form uh, knowledgeable of science or medicine. However, I have been told, so like what I I have been told that women struggle with that the most and that incorporating weightlifting and just other activities can help replenish um, or not maybe replenish, but uh, reverse or counteract bone density loss from endurance athletes.
0: Yeah, I, and on on the podcast, too, in general, and one of the things I always <laughs> try to put out there periodically when I start talking is that we're not trying to necessarily be expert, but we're trying to think, trying to ask questions. And when I'm hearing you say that, I want to say that I have in my mind, I feel like I'm remembering something about four, like osteoporosis and low bone density. I want to say that that rings a bell to me. And for whatever reason... That's I want to say that I've also heard that that might be more common for women. But I would, you know want to look that up. And usually what we'll do is if we make statements, then I go back and I find otherwise, then we, we follow up with it later. But I think it's still I, I think what's interesting about that kind of thing, and'd be interested to hear what your opinion on this is, I think sometimes the understandings that we have are more important and more powerful than maybe what the actual true understanding is right cuz we're going to act in a response to what our perception is right so if we have a perception of you know osteo bone density being more common among well then that's going to be what we're going to act on if we have a perception about we should do we shouldn't lift weights or i can't run or you know i can't do long rides or and you can go into all different levels of that like that's where our actions come from Right. I mean, that's what's interesting about that, too. But I think that that dynamic of like, how are we making our decisions about what we're going to do? Because everybody's time is limited. Right. And but at the same time, we also see things shift because I I think cycling has gone from being extremely an extremely narrow space. And there does seem to be signs of of life in terms of people's trying to be more willing to think outside of the box. And I think, too, you know, and this is where you, through your own experience, have a different perspective on this, obviously, than I do, but the reality is is that if you look in cycling, American athletes aren't at the same level as other groups of internationals from other countries, and you have to wonder, where is that coming from? I mean, I, I don't think it's because American male or female cyclists somehow inherently lack ability, where is that? Co- so that must be coming from somewhere else, right? And is that how we're approaching it? And is that then, and is how we're approaching that, is that based on the beliefs that we have, right? And that those beliefs are driving us to make choices that are leading us to these outcomes, right? And that becomes like a big thing to explore. And I think everybody has a different experience with that. And like for you too, I mean, it sounds like you're, still maybe feeling that your relationship to athletics and how you approach it and think about it is evolving. It doesn't sound like you've reached a point of like, oh, yeah, I know this is it. Because you're saying like with the lifting, right, feeling like these things have sort of are moving and you feel like you're kind of moving with that movement. Mm hmm.
1: Well, first off, I would like to say move over, Joe Rogan, because we are making claims and they're not backed up and we're checking it later. We're saying things that's and right. we're maybe checking it later. That's, okay. what the, so, that's what
0: the people want.
1: I just want to I just want to put it out there, Joe, we're coming for you. Um, I Perception, the idea of perception. And you said earlier also the word fulfillment. Um, I think these are two really important things with how. Cyclists, in particular, interface with their training and racing. So uh, and and maybe this is like this for other sports. I feel like cycling especially because there is some kind of some kind of meditative quality to doing this much training a lot of times alone, this kind of repetitive nature, um, that we wrap up a lot of our fulfillment, In this sport, it's all tied in with our mental health in a way that just seems even more intense, I feel like, than other sports. And so we're bringing all of our own problems, personal problems, to the sport. And then we're also having to balance balance that with how we perceive the sport. And, you know, I see a lot of, you know, uh, friends... I'll say, you know, colleagues, people that I race with, you look to other racers on the world tour or in other, you know, um, in other levels and disciplines, and we see what they did or what those folks did during that time period. And we try to replicate or copy or say, this is what I need to be doing Um, And so when you mix that all together, uh, it can get pretty disordered and pretty toxic um, internally and externally than if you were to project uh, this onto other people. Um, So... (sighs) I don't know. I think that we do get in our own way and hold ourselves back in this sport because we get so wrapped up into the internal workings of it all. Um, and I think that doesn't make the sport super approachable for other people. It's not relatable. A lot of the times uh, cyclists as as people are not always relatable because it really is this kind of like um, uh one track mind way of living and there's not much room for everything, for anything else, rather. And again, you know, I was just watching a, a fun documentary series about professional surfers that's on Apple TV. And it's a semi-similar life. Like I didn't even, I thought they were all, you know, hang loose, chilling, relaxing, they're at the beach. And they were uh extremely competitive um extremely type a so we're gonna see this at like the top level of the sport of any sport but what's interesting is that we see this at pretty much all levels of cycling and i kind of wonder if introducing balance doesn't uh you know not only makes the sport more relatable and more approachable for a wider audience but makes us healthier mentally and physically. Um, and emotionally for ourselves and for the
0: people who surround us, well, I think it's the iso- concept of the ice is- sense of isolation that comes with doing it I think is really an interesting phenomena because if you make a comparison to to running which you know is something that you have massive participation in and to be fair you know most people are probably not getting and I say this as like kudos to those people not a criticism but most people aren't getting anywhere close to their actual true physical potential right they're only able to or their only real interest is to engage with it with more of a recreational thing but there's a sense of just like you see people out running all the time whereas for me and you know like my brother if we're in the car and somebody goes by on a road bike it's like whoa You know, even though we do this stuff and you got to like lean out the window, Well, what kind of bike do they have? You know, but when you see people out running, you don't think anything of it because it's so much more commonplace, you know, right. You wonder, well, how does that relate to that sense of, you know, being, you know, individual and alone? And I talk to Jillian about this sometimes. And I say, you know, like there's this idea that we need to go and have access to the right geography, you know, or to some high performance center and you see this to be fair with you know, and maybe it's sort of disproportionately represented because of the way media and social media and YouTube work, but it seems like while all of these people have access to these resources and these special training centers and you know, what I've talked about with Jillian is it's like this the high performance center is us moving down the road right now, you know, on this run at 545 in the morning at, you know, whatever that it maybe it's nine minute mile pace, but like that's that space. And even just having that, having a person that you can consistently, you know, go out and do your activities with, I think changes that dynamic, right? But you know, having that Access to those kinds of things. One of the things my dad has said a lot about like his own, you know, experience, you know, having been a very high level runner at one point in his life and having always sort of continued to do this kind of thing is there's an element of going into the wilderness with this. And, you know, if you that book Into the Wild, I mean, right, the hope is that we're we're sojourning in our way towards feelings of esteem and and self-actualization and that we we come out we come off of the mountain so to speak and we've we've gotten something out of that but you wonder how we go like how prepared are we always to go and do that and one of the things that you know has struck me in particular you know hearing Jillian talk about butcher box and talk about you and then sort of observing from my perspective here in New England is you seem somebody who really see, I mean, and I obviously, you know, correct me on this, but it seems like you really engage strongly with that sense of maybe not wanting people to feel that they are lost in that space, you know, of disconnectedness. And I mentioned earlier, like my brother describing cycling is for him, when he did CS fellow And he wasn't talking about C.S. Velo per se, but just the whole milieu of the cycling environment. He said it was like a caste system. And he's like, well, in running, everybody, you run your time and like it keeps people more honest. But it it sometimes seems like people are grappling (laughs) for status within that space in an unhealthy way. And it's been interesting for me to observe, again, from my perspective, that you seem to be acting in a way to sort of try to assertively not enable that dynamic and i was wondering how do you see how do you see that space around you how do you see yourself in that space and do you feel a sense of responsibility or a desire to do that because there's aspects to your personality that make me think of somebody who makes an excellent teacher somebody who is engaging with other people because of the benefit they see to them not because of some perceived benefit to themselves
1: uh, I appreciate that um <clears throat> i I have a profound interest in this work because I know so intimately uh what it feels like to be lost in that wilderness and not in a good way right like to 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 be spiraling in your mind, uh, into another orbit, like, and it sucks. Um, I've definitely struggled with, um, mental issues in the past. Um, anorexia that was, You know, that manifested from obsessive compulsive disorder and like different anxiety things like that. Uh, And you don't try, you don't mean to be selfish, but you are highly concerned with what's going on on the inside. So, certain Um, extent,
0: that's inevitable for everybody, right?
1: Sure, sure. Of course, of course. You know, um, when we realize that the things outside, the external world is out of our control, we'll micromanage. Uh, everything in our immediate reach because that will give us some semblance of safety. Oh, if I just count every calorie that enters my body and count every step that I take and count how many times I touch things um, then I'm gonna I'm gonna gain control in some way of what's going on around me. But here is the kicker You're, you 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 act out all of those compulsive, um uh tendencies to to combat the obsessive intrusive thoughts but the compulsions feed into the obsession which feeds into the compulsion and then you get stuck in this circle now you don't have to have diagnosed ocd to to relate to that experience because when we are looking at strava and we're comparing ourselves to what other people are doing or what this person's coach has them doing, or this person's doing this race. And I'm not like you start these, these false obsessive compulsive disorder. Isn't that you just like your books alphabetical and in a straight line, it is your brain um, giving a uh, fall. It's setting off false alarms. And then you think something bad is going to happen. So then you're doing these, these, mo you're going through these motions to keep something bad from happening. And it's usually irrational, right? So I think that it is highly, highly important to maintain a healthy internal life that does not depend on the external world. And that does involve constant hard work, uh, It involves talking to yourself and checking in and saying, oh, you just had this invasive thought, you know, instead of trying to immediately deal with it by pushing it under the rug with I'm going to go out for an extra hour or something, I'm going to just push harder. You instead say, you know, where do you think that thought came from? Like, you just had that feeling. Like, why do you think that was? What are you responding to? Um, And it's a lot of hard work to do alone, especially if you're already isolated. Um, And so having a, and just a couple, you don't need all of these other fucking opinions out here, uh, muddying the water. I don't have a coach to tell me to go harder. I have a coach who, who sits on the outside of this internal environment I'm trying to maintain. And he, I trust his process and so when I start to feel like I'm spinning out of control, I remember, oh, Justin is on the outside. He's my anchor. He says, as long as you are following this process that you signed up for, you are doing exactly what you need to do and it's going to be okay. And then I'm like, oh, doesn't matter what Tristan's doing. It doesn't matter what Jillian's doing. For example, um, I'm doing this for me and this is my path and it's a good path because it's mine. It's a good path because it's mine. It's not a good path because anyone else said so or because this is what so and so did. It's a good path because I worked with someone that I trusted that made it and then I and I'm tr- I'm trusting it myself. Um and and I think that's how you can balance um, a sport that does require a lot of alone time and does make you feel isolated from friends and family at certain points. Um, but I would also like to say that it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be the extra hour in the long run, isn't going to benefit you too much. If you're already committed to that work and striving towards excellence, that extra hour to like, go hang out with your friend. Uh, so you're not late to dinner. That's probably going to be more beneficial to you, uh, from burning out and staying focused for your actual goals. Well,
0: I think that, I mean as you're talking I'm looking over and I'm I'm writing down cuz everything your things you're saying are making me think all of these thoughts um you know one of the things that I started the podcast with and why I sort of initially got this bee in my bonnet to do this in the first place is cuz I was thinking about and I have a history degree so I that always informs my perspective on things. And I look for these causalities, and I don't take any inherent structure and say, well, that's the way it is because that's the way it is. My feeling is everything has reached the point that it's at because of the point that it's at. And as you're talking about how we're processing and reacting to our environment and that way that that comparative nature, which on the one hand, I think it's hard to get through and engage with sport of any kind and not have that happen. Because at the end of the day, you could argue that that's sort of the point. And if you're having a good relationship with it, hopefully those comparisons are, are happening in the context of it's fun and exciting to come out of the wilderness and here's what I created and we're going to all go and show what we've created. And I, I think athletics done right should feel like a form of creative self-expression and those opportunities to be with your process, you know, it should be rewarding because you're developing something that you're going to be able to come out and show, and and be proud of. But with starting the podcast, I think historically there's this strong narrative of a path of discipline, and, and people who've listened to the first episodes will have this will sound familiar to you, of course, but. I think it's such a prevailing theme that it's something that's going to come up again and again, inevitably. But that the act of doing sport is oftentimes presented as you have to like subsume or take control of your mind. And you see in that this sort of weight of Christianity original sin. And, you know, this isn't to marginalize anybody's belief system, but. You see the weight of that kind of mentality. And then the original idea that the challenge of sport was to engage with pain. And I'm not a football fan, but there's this Vince Lombardi quote that says, Fatigue makes cowards of us all. And this idea that we as people, as our consciousness, are must be fundamentally inadequate or not good enough. And I contrast this idea that well, we need to be disciplined and we need to overcome that And that like, there's this linear relationship between ability to handle pain and then performance. And I contrast with this idea of what I advocate for is this feel-good idea. That I think not only is it important to feel good as a person, period. You know, we only go around once. Ideally, you don't want to spend that being miserable. But I also think it's true that we tend to get better at things. When we feel better, too, it's not because I think a lot of people might hear in that. Oh, well, so feeling good is this opposite thing. And like, well, I can either be some people get to be the high performance people and then other people, everybody else. Your only way you can have fun is if you're stopping and drinking fireball shots at the aid station in the gravel race. And, you know, for me, it's like that can be alienating for me because I've never been the person who goes out and wins the races But I like to feel, you know, and it's true because it is how I feel. I like to feel that I'm engaged in this stuff and that I make my best effort and that that's valid. And I like to understand this stuff and I'm serious about it. But I'm also not Elliot Kipchoge. I don't run the marathon in under two hours. I don't win the Tour de France. And I don't think you need to do that. But I think it's complicated because it's this environment in which, and part of it is literally the economic you know, marketing factors that push this too. But there's this celebration of the people who win. And I think sometimes it seems like we can't do that without also marginalizing the people who don't. And I don't think we appreciate the harm that we do to people when we do that. And I wonder if for some people think that it's just this like social Darwinist survival of the fittest of like, well, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen kind of thing. But I think that it's possible to look at people who do really awesome and be like, that's pretty cool. But I think you can learn probably more. And this is, I guess, maybe one of the core philosophies of behind this podcast is I think you learn more about doing this. And I think this, the study of performance is the human experience because we want on that hierarchy of needs we all have a need to self-actualize in order to feel good. And sport is one way to do that. And the things we learned about self-actualization here can apply anywhere else, you know, and for you, are like in this particular space and this context, this an environment. And I'm curious, like, how has your relationship or philosophy about that environment, maybe if it has changed or evolved over time? And, you know, do you feel like, because, you know, you're talking about, right, the way in which sport can promote and sort of seem to engage these anxieties or these feelings of compulsion and whatever. But we also have this idea that sport is supposed to be really healthy and good for us. So do you feel that there's like a duality there where it can do both things at once? And like, how much of that do you feel is internal? And then how much of that do you feel like, is a product of that environment, like if the environment of cycling could be different. I think there's already an argument we said for it to be different because I think there are people who have awesome physical potential, but aren't getting to elevate that to maybe the scale that you see with other male and female athletes from other nationalities. You know, and and I know this is maybe kind of a wandering question, but I think it's such a complicated thing. It's hard to really only talk about any one piece at, at a time
1: yes um two things one i have not won a race in a very long time uh i have a lot of people who are interested in my racing and who enjoy watching me race because for me i don't just celebrate paper results i strive for celebrating all of the other amazing things that happen before, after, during the race that can be really lighting up the race in some way, getting close to winning, but not quite animating it. Um, or, or even having a bad day and being like, I had a bad day, you know, like just being honest and open about all of those experiences. Um, it makes you relatable and it gives more color to what is just you know, maybe a podium photo or, or paper results. Uh, The reality, the very unfortunate reality, particularly in our sport is that uh, this, this self-flagellating, like you had mentioned, like this, like, like almost like esoteric kind of Christian discipline, that is really glorified and glamorized in our sport that you must rake yourself over the coals, have no friends, never see your family get in a thousand hours, like all these things. And, and I think that uh, as, an athletic culture as a whole, the world is moving away from this because you see, we're starting to see and people are starting to talk about the mental, physical, and emotional ramifications of living your life in that way. Here's a spoiler alert. It's not fucking good and you don't last long. And there are some people who continue on and remain successful. You know, I loved that documentary, Last Dance. Michael Jordan, you know, uh, is one of the greatest athletes who has ever lived. He has not yet had a heart attack. Uh, I would never wish anyone to have it, but I can't help but feel that someone who who fuels themselves through negativity doesn't have that in their future. Because I don't feel like that cultivates a very healthy internal life when you create fights in your head to help amp you up to go win the game. So you won, and you're the greatest athlete ever. I'm curious at what that cost is. If that is your only, if that actually is in some, some sort of, you know, convoluted way, a way that makes you happy, then all the more to you, I'm not going to judge what makes people happy and gives their life meaning. I just want to bring up the point that living your life that way, or trying to emulate people like that, uh, won't, won't only promise you success as far as results, but it'll definitely not promise you any success in any other aspect of your life. And so I feel that uh, the concept of happiness Watts is a very real thing. It's when you feel like you're flying on the bike because work lets you out early. um, And, you know, maybe you're getting along with your mom better than usual and it's sunny out and for no reason you are just flying on the bike. When all of the other aspects in your life are going well, that's going to translate to to having more fun and having a healthier relationship with your sport. And to cultivate that, you need to be maintaining all the other parts of your life in addition to your athletic endeavors. And again, there are very successful people who have this kind of, um, you know, blinders on monastic way of living their life. Uh, And if they are truly genuinely happy, then that's more power to them. But I don't think that is, uh, is a, is a good example for 99% of, of the world. And so you might say, Paige, well, you know, that top layer is only reserved for the greats, the geniuses, the, this, the, that I'm like, that's fine. But like these folks die young and they don't really seem happy. So like, if that's just what you want out of life, I do kind of feel bad for you a little bit. You know, I think you need to have other things going on that make your life rich and that will in turn make your relationship and your success in racing and your relationship with cycling that more richer as well.
0: I think first of all, I, that's so interesting that you bring up the Michael Jordan example, and Bro, the last, it's insane. The His, last dance him thing. in that
1: documentary is insane and I was like, how have you not had like some sort of like medical thing keeping all of that hate and anger inside of you?
0: Well, and I had actually talked about that in an episode. That was one of the con- I used that as an example too of this concept of it's like for some people it seems like their goal in being competitive is to become the greatest right or to be the superlative and what happens with these people who quote unquote get to that point all of these people people look back and they they criticize them or they marginalize them you know within basketball you know i think one point is how fulfilled is michael jordan in his life if he needs to produce a documentary to glorify himself to keep him in the public eye. Because it's like the whole goal is to be like done with the experience. Because there's when you're in the experience, there's always the possibility you might screw up. And you might ruin your legacy. But then once it's over, it seems like the preoccupation is, well, now I need to ensure and protect my legacy. Or Bill Russell, another basketball example. You know, I was thinking about him because he had died over the summer. And he was a big figure in in civil rights and, you know, so other aspects to his life, certainly. And he played with the Boston Celtics for 13 years and they won 11 times. And he was also the coach and athlete on on the team the last year. So really unique person. And basically people look at that and they take that as evidence that he wasn't good. Or Emil Zatopek, a Czechoslovakian runner who only runner to ever win the 5,000 and the 10,000 in the Marathon and Olympics in 1952. Nobody knows who he is. And I think it's okay, personally, I think it's okay to be forgotten. Because, not to be you know, morbid, but you're not going to care when you're dead because you're not going to know... <laughs> Whether or not people remember you, but and so all you have is that experience that that you have there. Um, but I also think too, right? One of the things that you're talking about, additionally, more specifically, was this, like you're saying that, like monastic sense. And I really like self-flagellation. What an excellent reference there! I think that really hits the nail on the head. And there's the sense that, like, the more that you do that, like that's what's going to make the difference. Right, And it almost is like you can do all the training, but unless you fucking hate yourself enough and you don't, unless you hate every, and you see people cultivate that narrative, I feel, I guess I'm putting, I'm not, I guess I can't state this as a fact. This is my impression. I feel people cultivate that narrative and I feel I know enough about this stuff and I come from a very athletic family and I, you know, I, I don't know if I've told you this before, and I may have mentioned it on the podcast in general, but, you know, all myself and both of my younger brothers ran all through high school and all through college. My youngest brother, if he was given the opportunities that Quinn Simmons was, he would be winning shit in the world tour. Um, but instead, he can't even get a therapeutic use exception for his inhaler, you know, because we don't give a shit about people who aren't a part of the system. I have an aunt, my dad's sister, went to the Olympics twice for Nordic and was a 14-time national champion, and she just picked up that sport in college. And then, you know, my dad, uh, Alberto Salazar, world record holder in the marathon, won the Massachusetts-Connecticut interstate meet. The person won it the year after that was my dad. And then my dad's dad, you know, ran track and field at the University of Michigan with Bob Ufer, who was the world indoor record holder in the quarter mile. And none of this is to say that I, I, I genuinely don't think this makes me special, but I want to acknowledge that I think being in a family where that kind of athletic participation and like not just going out and exercising, but just going out and exercising twice a day is as normal as eating breakfast and lunch. I recognize and have come to recognize more and more how anomalous that is. And how it normalizes all of these kinds of aspects of that experience. And so for me, it makes it sort of more obvious when I see people projecting this narrative of, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I don't say this, I, I hope that to the listeners, this doesn't sound harsh or judgmental, but that's bullshit. Like, you're not, do, these people, they're not doing that. Like, it's not, because like your point is, it's not sustainable. And it's frustrating to me sometimes that people, in my opinion, and and maybe I'm overstating it for the purpose of emphasizing the point I'm trying to make, it's frustrating to me that I feel that these people lie about their experience, because I do think you have a responsibility if you have an audience, and, and maybe I think this way more so because I'm a teacher, and I have an audience as a teacher, and I think about that responsibility a lot. I think if you have an audience, you have a responsibility to be a little more honest. And that's one of my goals with this podcast is to like give voice to like the authentic experience. And, you know, my dad trained with Joni Benoit when they still lived in Maine. And she was the first woman to win the Olympic, women's Olympic marathon. And they were at my parents' wedding. And I would never have any particular interest in interviewing Joni on the podcast, even if I could finagle that angle to do that not because I think Joni I think Joni is a very nice person but I think those people's stories are all we ever hear and I don't think it's helping and I think again when we look at this with cycling like we see this like underperformance where like on average right the average American maybe let's talk specifically about you know, women cycling, because that's sort of more specific to our conversation, I think. But like women cyclists should be able to do so much better. There's nothing about American women on bicycles that would imply they're somehow limited or constrained like this. I wonder if this insistence of like make yourself friggin' miserable is the problem in large part that because it pushes people. And I think the isolation thing, like it's really hard for anybody in cycling. But I think there's just literally, you know, people per square mile in the women's side of the sport. It's even harder because, like, where is that space to like engage? Like, you go into it, and what are you learning from? And I know, I know people um, who take a lot of cues from what they see on Instagram. And I'm looking at this and I'm like reading people's captions in some cases. And I'm just like, makes my eyes roll so bad. They're going to like fall out the back of my skull. But I think we don't realize how for a lot of folks, it's like you have that might be your only window, right?
1: So, so just to, so that I understand before I respond. So two things, are you, what about the women's, when you look at women's cycling, What are you seeing? Are you are you saying like that it hasn't grown in terms of numbers that we haven't that we don't have more of a presence on a a global scale? Um, And what kind of captions are the ones that really make your eyes roll? So two questions. Yeah.
0: So I would say for the first piece, I think that and this is more of like a maybe a sociological kind of concept I'm thinking about what we were talking about earlier with like that feeling of like how do you navigate a space when there's a sense of being alone in the wilderness but it's not like an empowering way it might be like I'm an I'm lost way and like that contrast of like when people get into a sport like running like everywhere you go you're going to bump into people doing that and that when you're trying to do these activities where it's just harder to find people because just the number, like if you compare, I think that you sort of have this weight. I think it's something that's been true in athletics for a long time in general. I feel that the social barrier to entry into sport culturally for women seems to have always been more difficult or more challenging. Like you have the belief that at one time people, well, women can't run because if they run too much, their uterus will fall out. And there's all these culturally limiting beliefs. And I feel like there's a historical weight of that has sort of made it more challenging for women to find their way into these activities. Right. And I think it's a different, I'm not saying it should be this way. And I don't think it has to be this way. But I think when you look at the culture, it seems to be the case that it's a different, it's different. Right. So if you can't find people in your immediate geography, to go out and do this stuff with, right? Or, and I think one of the consequences is like when there's less people, there's more likely to be these fitness gaps, right? But if there's a bunch of people, it's like, okay, well, this person, we have a big difference in fitness. It's hard for me to do this with them. But there's six other people and three of them are kind of where I am and I can start doing this with them. But when there's like just less people per square mile, right? It's harder to get into that, space socially and so then the second thing would right and so then I say the messages we see on there I think there are and to be clear I don't believe that social media is inherently bad um I mean you talk about people circulating misinformation like people are publishing pamphlets during the 1860s about how Abraham Lincoln uh may negotiated with Satan um, to get elected president like people find a way to circulate stuff that's wrong I don't think there's anything inherent about social media it's it's just a platform for behavior but i think about like how when you get into an activity and like cycling in particular another layer of this is it's not sponsored scholastically so it's not like you can go through public school. And it's an extracurricular that you can sign up for and engage with there and and network and meet people through that space. So I think I'm, I guess I'm sort of hypothesizing or speculating when there's less tangible social access in where you are, you look for engagement somewhere else. And then, right, like when you're talking about this sort of self-flagellation narratives, like, well, if you're getting into this, I wonder if it's hard to differentiate between what are those constructive kind con- concepts that are going to allow you to get to where you're feeling good and you're having what I think the goal is that positive relationship versus you know getting sucked into because it seems to be like a black hole, right? Like when you were talking about the way in which this stuff's sort of sort of like play on our insecurities or our anxieties or our compulsions as people, like we kind of are. I feel like people become vulnerable. And I think that I don't mean to single out um, women as a concept of being vulnerable. I'm thinking about, is there a consequence of the structure of that where like when it's harder to find people, right. That you sort of relate to and say, Oh, you are like me. Right. And like, what's the consequence of that isolation? And then does the self-flagellation thing does that like limit the sort of like ability to sort of grow the level of engagement, you know what I mean? It's sort of like a weird, I guess I'm sort of describing multiple different strands sort of pulling to create that, but like I think I also feel that it would be uninformed to just sort of equivocate and say well there's no substantive difference between the experience of being a male cyclist and a female cyclist in the United States. I think that there's just Different levels of engagement and support, and mindset and attitude around it, which is a reflection of our society, not the people trying to do the sport.
1: Well, you know, yeah, I do think there is. I think you were right in using the word vulnerable, not to, to like a feminine trope, but but there is a vulnerability to women cycling, um, and and because there's not as much sponsorship. There's fewer eyes. There's not as much people like it is in a more vulnerable state because it's trying to get its footing um, to what has been, quote, you know, a boys club. Right. Uh, And I think that a lot of the characters and the standards and the norms that have been set from way back when uh, by the dudes or and just by like more traditional old fashioned thinking like it it is intimidating like it does seem that you must suffer uh to be successful in this sport and of course it absolutely takes sacrifice um to achieve uh that level of success in 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 an endeavor that is extremely difficult right but we have there is a more there is a better way to do this I really do think that there's a better more positive way to do it and that it maybe it might take a little bit longer for a positive feedback loop to uh, motivate you to get something done rather being like uh I bet Tristan's thinking right now how stupid I look on the bike so I'm gonna get out there and smack you know what I mean like you know I, I know that I look and feel good on the bike. So I'm going to go out there and ride for me. That's the flip of it, right? There's an easy, there's another side of the coin. And, and I think that for whatever reason, and that's the crazy thing. I don't even think that there's a financial or any set reason that people try to hide that side of the coin, Um the, the side of the coin that says you can be happy and still be successful, that you don't have to be some kind of tortured artist, like all of our idols who died when they were 28. Right. It, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and I, and I think that a lot of different, whether it's music or sport, a lot of different areas have been hurt um, by the fact that uh, the people who had, a, who had struggled with self-loathing um and and self punishing tendencies were the successful ones. Um, and as someone who still struggles and every day has to remind themselves, uh, are you going to the gym today because you want to get stronger, or do you feel like you're punishing yourself for something that you did or thought? I struggle intensely with um, self flagellating behavior, uh, and and music, sport it it attracts. It attracts that kind of person because you get to put all of your energy into this thing and the way that you feel something is to suffer, but it doesn't have to just be that. It can be suffering and happiness. I think that you can have both. I think that it is critical to have both. I was actually just telling a friend, you know, it is a, it is a great privilege to feel each of those feelings and all the other ones all the way out to their edges, Right. The capacity to suffer and to hurt deeply uh, is equal and should be equal to our capacity to love and find happiness and to find fulfillment and things that are positive. Um, And you must have a life that is full of those peaks and valleys to be fulfilled. If you are just flatlining yourself on something that is just happiness, you know, no discomfort. No growth or just suffering, just pain or numbness. If you're flatlining on any of them, any emotion, um, I think you're really closing yourself off to the beauty and also torture of life. And as we mentioned at the risk of getting morbid, uh, <clears throat> you know, all we have is this moment and you probably will be forgotten. 99% of us will be forgotten. You're only guaranteed this moment uh, uh, and, and life itself is kind of a great trick. Right, the our our main driving instinct is to survive, and the only guarantee is that we won't. A gr- a very great philosopher said that. His name is Stevo, um, and and I think that's really important. And so, what is what is Stevo saying with that? He's saying then to live and to and to live a fulfilled life is to be in this moment and to create it the way that you want it, and 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 that that involves not comparing yourself to others to being on your own path and appreciating it and to living this diverse life where multiple areas of your existence are being fed and are being appreciated. instead of just one thing, because I do think that you will be on your deathbed and be like, I just did that one thing.
0: That's part one of my conversation with Paige Kostanecki. Next week, part two, we'll talk more about what are the kind of barriers that surround us, barriers that we're confronted with, barriers that we might sometimes construct for ourselves, and how can we engage with these barriers and work to overcome them. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check us out on Instagram if you are joining the pod at Black Cats Run, and we'll catch you next time.